every single one of us matters. Every single one of us has some role to play. The Sustainable Hour. For a green, clean, sustainable Geelong. The Sustainable Hour. Welcome to the Sustainable Hour. As always, we'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from the land of the Wathaurong people. We pay tribute to the elders past, present, and those that earn that great honour in the future. We're broadcasting from stolen land. It's land that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We can't hope to have any sort of climate justice until we get justice for our First Nations brothers and sisters. And finally, we have so much to learn from the ancient wisdom that they honed from nurturing their land and their communities for millennia before their land was stolen. Climate action begins with leadership. Really, it begins with when we see our leaders take climate action, when we hear them speak boldly about taking action. And action, very often, as we know, means, for instance, making new investments. It means, for us personally, it means we have to replace our old gas and petrol-driven machines with electric ones. And sometimes there's an investment there, there's some money we have to pay for that. But also, importantly, action is about a shift in our mindset. So leadership is something that can create that sort of shift and create collaboration that we all feel we are on board, we are all taking action. And what does that then look like at community level? Well, this Saturday, the mayor of Geelong, Trent Sullivan, had invited the key community members of the city to attend what they call the City of Greater Geelong Net Zero Forum to discuss how we, and I quote here from the invitation, how we can develop ways in which our community groups can work in greater collaboration as we work towards net zero emissions by 2035. And you would think that at an event like that, wouldn't you expect that that same mayor who put his name on the invitation, he would be standing there welcoming the attendees to the conference or at least giving a welcome speech, or at least a video of his welcome speech. But no, the mayor was a no-show. And this is what gets me a little bit outraged, actually. Not even one of the 11 councillors we have in the city thought that this conference was important enough that they should show up to it. What kind of leadership is that? How is that going to create a shift in the broader Geelong community mindset? A mindset which we can see so clearly is full of love for fossil fuel driven, climate wrecking motor vehicles and motor sports and motor events. The next general election for the City of Greater Geelong Council will be held on the 26th of October next year. Which means that now, folks, now is the time to start looking, I say, for a new team of candidates to that election so we can get a council that actually cares about that we get to net zero emissions by 2035. Colin Market, OAM, let's broaden the outlook now. Which kind of news do you have for us from around the world? Well, I'm starting with the coronation, which was another event that happened last Saturday. 
Mick. And I think you can add the fact that the council scheduled the day when they wanted um, people to roll up and hear about and come up with ideas for sustainable living. They scheduled the day on the day of the coronation when everybody else had other things to go to. Plus, there was Harley Davidson's in Geelong. So, oh, of course, they were not all going to turn up, weren't they? Anyway, um, at the coronation in London, Buckingham Palace had said that in keeping with the new King Charles's wishes, his coronation would be smaller and more environmentally friendly than previous coronations. Apparently, he was wearing recycled clothes and the venue used recycled furniture. Now, that doesn't mean that they went down to the local salvos for their outfits, as was obvious when you looked at the television. It turned out that Charles was wearing the golden silk robes that his grandfather had worn at his coronation, while Queen Camilla wore a robe that her mother-in-law, the late Queen, wore at hers. And the recycled furniture was the throne that all monarchs have been crowned on for around about a thousand years. I think all of that counts as supreme royal greenwashing, and that if they were serious about saving emissions, they would have invited Greta Thunberg to arrange the guest list and their transport. That's just a thought from me. But now to America, where the United States government, in the form of their EPA, has joined a political battle between environmental groups and the plastics industry mainly represented by ExxonMobil, over what is called chemical or advanced recycling. The move preempts changes to the US Green Guides, which lay down the guidelines for companies' environmental claims. Behind the move is the global recognition of the world plastics crisis, with the UN now acknowledging the widespread failure of plastic recycling. For decades, we've been told to separate our plastics and put it in yellow bins when we all know that it winds up in landfill. Very little of it ever gets recycled. We're greenwashed to the point of being scrubbed. Of particular concern is the plastic manufacturers who are mounting a new publicity campaign in the US to gain public acceptance of what they're calling advanced or chemical recycling. Now, that requires new kinds of chemical plants that seek to break down plastic waste using chemicals, high heat process, or both. And then that turns that waste into feedstocks that can be mixed with fossil fuels or incorporated into new plastic products. The industry claims that advanced recycling is a circular plastics economy. Against them, the US EPA says advanced recycling is advanced greenwashing. It's an energy-intensive process with a high carbon footprint that incinerates plastic waste and turns a small percentage into new plastic or more fossil fuels. Now, we'll keep you updated with the proceedings in future uh, roundups. Now, in that regard, can we go back to India and a story that we brought you last week? If you remember, they're about to open the world's third biggest solar farm in the southern state of Karnakata. It covers 40 square kilometers and it surrounds five small villages. 
Well, this week it turned out that those five villages don't have electricity and they're going to continue not to have electricity. Not only are they not getting any power from the plant that surrounds them, they're not on the grid at all. Apparently, all of the villages are small with fewer than 100 people each. And they're getting a tiny payment, about $5 per month each person, from the solar operators. But they wouldn't get that. They wouldn't qualify for it if they'd chosen to be connected to the power. So they all settled for the compensation settlements, the payments. But they're now having difficulty in feeding their animals because they have to travel up to 10 kilometers out of the farm with their ox or handcarts to get enough hay to bring back and feed the animals that are back in their villages. And whereas before, it was simply collected locally. And it goes to illustrate the difficulties that some countries are having to decarbonize. And it makes our problems appear tiny by comparison. Now back to the US. And the New Yorker magazine invited the activist and author Bill McKibben. He's a, we're always referring to him. He's an activist from way back. And the New Yorker invited him to list the most practical steps that their readers could take in their own decarbonizing efforts. Bill came up with five-point list. I'll read them all now because they're all incredibly surprising. Number one is to persuade a young person to become an electrician. That's because projections show that America would need at least a million more electricians in order to go full ball with the project of running cars, heating homes, and cooking food on clean, renewable power. The job pays well, and he remarked that it's hard to be too gripped with climate despair when you've got a pair of pliers in your hand and you're actually doing something about the problem. Suggestion number two was if you are or have been a student, ask the school or uni's development office if they've divested from fossil fuels yet, and point out that Harvard, Princeton, and the University of California, Michigan, Oxford, Cambridge, and hundreds more have already taken steps to do so. What's more, study after study has shown that this has essentially had no financial penalty to them, and that it could prove useful in attracting new students, especially of the Thunberg generation, who have little tolerance for climate hypocrisy. Number three is to organize a neighborhood group to take advantage of government rebates to fund renewable energy. It's much easier and cheaper to install solar panels or insulation at a bunch of houses along adjoining streets than it is to do it piecemeal. And if your neighbors organize, they can get a much better price from suppliers and contractors. Number four is to hop on the e-bike he said that of all the new electric technologies, this may turn out to be the most game-changing. There are more e-bikes sold each year than electric cars. They use less power than a car, which is good because the less we use, the fewer solar panels we need to put up to power them. Their advantage is that they get you outside to enjoy what is still a beautiful planet, he said and they'll likely turn you into an evangelist for more bike lanes, thus setting off a clean living cycle. And fifth, he recommended that New Yorkers decarbonize their credit cards. 
This is because data shows that the big four American banks are also the world's four biggest fossil fuel lenders. That means that money sitting in their vaults and then being lent out to new pipelines and frack wells is a potent source of emissions. By one recent estimate from the Decarbonisation Advocacy Group, Bank FWD, keeping a few thousand dollars in those mainstream banks for a year is the carbon emissions equivalent of flying across the country. Moving your mortgage is hard work, but moving your credit card is relatively easy. Just make sure that when you cut it up, you let everybody, especially the, the bank or the institution, you let them know why you're doing it. Now, there's no news this week from Forest Green Rovers because they played their last match at the weekend. They lost 2-0. Next year, they'll be playing in the uh, English Second Division. And that's the end of my roundup for the week. Listen to our sustainable hour for the future. Our first guest today is Kat McLeod. Kat is a climate activist, uh, part of Extinction Rebellion, and she's here to tell us about an important event uh, next weekend in Nam, in Melbourne, and it's a women's circle. Yeah, this is Women's Rebellion. It's a global movement. It started from XR Sweden, um, you know, a whole lot of women coming together and sitting down in kind of like grief at the lack of action in their country. And they found that over time they were aggregating more and more people. So they actually decided that this was a really successful thing for them to do, to just sit in a simple circle in a public space. And then they decided, well, they were all women, so they went, well, let's let's call it out. Let's let's name ourselves as, you know, the Mother's Rebellion. So they've called themselves the Mother's Rebellion for Climate Justice. So it's a gathering together in a peaceful way. It's a, more of a social disturbance than a civil disturbance, and it's about um, showing solidarity with each other and unity and actually an opportunity to bring people in who don't necessarily want to block a road or disrupt traffic or don't have the time to go to the endless rounds of meetings that other activists <laughs> engage in. And it's it's saying with the simple act of sitting still in a public space that you are prepared to assert yourself in a calm and peaceful way, but in a calm, peaceful and public way, um, and to trigger some sort of thought in the passers-by. So this circle faces outwards, it faces the passers-by and the women, um, and it isn't just mothers, it's sisters, aunts, grandmothers, any ally who has in their hearts a child that they know or care for or even that they don't know but they do care for, that idea of showing concern for the future generations and naming your concern in public and sitting with it in public and with that conveying that we refuse to look away, this is their statement, with our circles we convey that we refuse to look away, we refuse to give up and we will do everything we can. So it's a, just a very simple expression. Hey, Kat, that sounds wonderful. It's long been my belief that mothers are the people who will lead us out of the uh, climate problems that we have. Presumably, you've done it before the sitting in a circle in Melbourne. How many uh, mothers do you get or did you get 
Are you looking for new recruits? And how do you select the position where you're going to go? If you're not going to disrupt anybody walking and you're not going to um, disrupt traffic, how do you select where you're going to be holding one of those protests? Well, first off, no, we haven't done this before in Melbourne. They just asked us three weeks ago. They said, oh, we have this global and because it's global the, it is a global event and it will be happening i've i've heard now in about 20 different countries it's from nigeria to um sweden to switzerland uk there's quite a few african countries quite a few american countries um so yeah we haven't done this before in melbourne so this will be our inaugural sit down and <laughs> we just had to choose a public space that wouldn't be obstructing anything but that was public enough to be seen so we we opted for fed square but fed square was busy because we were giving them very late little notice um so we decided to um go for outside the national gallery because it is open and large and everybody knows it yeah, we're not sure how many people turn up. Got no idea about that. And yes, we'd love everybody who identifies as a mother, aunt, sister, ally, anybody who's a carer and wants to join in. Yep, there's a low threshold for joining in. You just need to be able to sit on the ground in a public space, basically. Picking up from the school strike for climates, the kids, our kids, my kids, were prepared to do a lot. And I think, uh, you know, it's time that we actually stood behind them. Mm. I, I remember one of my children being asked in a public forum, you know, oh, it's amazing what you guys are doing. What can we do to support you? And my child saying, well, just be an adult. <laughs> 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 do something. Yeah. Don't leave it to us. And I think that's that's what I'm feeling here. It's, it's a, like this is a taking up the mantle that the School Strike for Climate Kids put out yeah. there and picking it up for them. Any significance in the fact that it's a day before Mother's Day? I think that is. I think it was chosen by a crew in America, in the United States of America, and, yes, it is. It is the day before Mother's Day. That is the choice. That is why it is, uh, it is chosen to coincide with Mother's Day. If people want to join, how can they join you on Saturday? How can they do that? Is there a, a website or something we can publicise? They could just Google Mother's Rebellion and they will get um, hopefully directed to a Facebook page and then you could look up the Facebook page or you could just turn up at the forecourt of the National Gallery of Victoria this Saturday morning. That's the 13th at 10.30am. Laurie Parson is a senior lecturer in human geography at the Royal Holloway at the University of London and he explores how climate change is articulated through the social and the political systems within which we live. He says that whatever carbon reductions we may set for ourselves, we will never be able to properly tackle the climate emergency if we're not first tackling the implicit carbon colonialism that underpins our approach to 
climate change. And now he's published a book about just that. And as it turns out, this has quite a lot to do with this event that we're organizing on the 25th of May at the Geelong Library, where we have a corporate lawyer come to talk about how we need to change the corporate law in this country. The book is called Carbon Colonialism, How Rich Countries Export Climate Breakdown. And I guess it's a response to a number of different takes that have got merged in the last few years, uh, which have used the word colonialism around carbon and around the climate. So there's been lots of different angles on this. For example, uh, the use of carbon capture and storage has been called carbon colonialism. We've also had a lot of talk about the use of carbon credits, taking over certain amounts of forest uh, in order to uh, you know, provide credits to companies who are using too much carbon. Uh, we've also had carbon colonialism being applied to cracking down on slash and burn of Sweden agricultural and traditional communities. That's been seen as a way of making smaller communities pay for the kind of carbon sins of large corporations. Also, more broadly, in the sense of importing emissions. So for countries uh, like the UK, which import a load of goods, we've had the word carbon colonialism applied to the fact that, for example, if emissions happen overseas in China or where I am now in Cambodia, then they don't count towards our headline national statistics. So what the book tries to do is to bring all of these kind of takes together and the fact that there's this conversation around carbon, climate and colonialism and to try to tie this into a wider sense of understanding how our political economy over the last uh, 500 years has brought us to this point. So if the book's trying to do anything, it is trying to put some kind of global context into the situation that we find ourselves in and say that this isn't just a question of having accidentally arrived at a situation where we produce too much carbon, but also that the, the system that we find ourselves now in channels and structures the impacts of the climate so that the people who are more vulnerable economically also become the more vulnerable uh, environmentally. They become the first people and the worst people affected by um, the climate. And also, above all, I suppose it's a call to recognize our power to change those economic systems, even if we don't have the capacity to suck all of that carbon immediately out of the atmosphere, and to move towards a more economically driven perspective on the climate and its impacts. So, Laura, explain to us what went wrong. <laughs> I mean, over these last 500 years, what, what was it that even allowed companies to be wrecking our climate? Why don't we have a law? Well, I mean, that's a big question. I mean, so it depends on your perspective. Right? For some people, it has nothing went wrong. <laughs> a lot of people are still doing absolutely fine and will continue to do so. So that's, uh, that's one of the main points that we want to get across in the book. So um, one of the narratives that the book challenges is the idea that we're all in this together. It's something that often gets talked about. You often hear about it in environmental campaigning. So like we all got to do our bit. We've all got to cut back, you know, take that one less flight, you know, shop that extra sustainable product. But what that kind of narrative really doesn't recognize is the vastly unequal impact of different countries, different companies, different people on the environment. And the way that's that is all tied into global historical systems of resource exploitation. Rather than seeing this as something that we can all come together to solve, this is a perspective which tries to show how the unequal accumulation of resources around the world over the last several hundred years has ultimately created these inequalities which make the climate's impact so much worse for many people around the world 
than others. So when you say what went wrong, I mean, this is really just the continuation of, uh, of, a, of a system which was for a long time seen as going incredibly right. And then, in fact, for many of us around the world, in Australia and the UK, it's still going right. We're not the ones who are vulnerable to these impacts, uh, certainly not to anything like the same extent as people who live with them every day around the world today. Laurie, can capitalism survive if we're going to get to this world, you know, this, this safer, more just, inclusive, peaceful and healthy world? Uh, can capitalism survive? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't actually like to see this necessarily as a binary thing between capitalism and socialism or capitalism and a kind of uh, utopian future. I mean, I think that actually the majority of the things that we do and many things we can do can survive absolutely fine. Um, we don't need to get rid of our local shop or even, you know, our kind of market for any kind of given products. I mean, in fact, I think what we just need to do is to recognise that large scale fossil fuel emissions and the companies that produce those, those goods, those fossil fuels need to be vastly more heavily regulated and that there needs to be a much greater seriousness about the regulation of producing products and importing products around the world. It's a, it's a legal solution to a political problem and getting to that stage and recognising this isn't something that we're going to fix with the kind of new machine that will suddenly suck all this carbon out of the atmosphere is important. This isn't something that, you know, we as Western people have to make huge sacrifices to achieve. It's something that Western governments and the wealthy governments around the world need to recognise. They need to legislate and regulate their way out of it. And that's something that I think we need to requires a change of mindset to get there. It appears to me it's not that much different from the attitude that uh, the Western people had 200 years ago when slavery was okay. And it was okay to take people across the ocean over to work in, in cotton fields. At that time, it seemed impossible that slavery would ever end. Yet, at some point, it did because there was a change of mindset. But this one seems to be even harder, doesn't it? Somebody made the, the calculation that the equivalent of all the barrels of oil that we're burning every day, the energy that this holds is like the equivalent of having 96 billion slaves working for us at the moment on planet Earth. 96 billion slaves. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is absolutely enormous and it, it's a huge issue. And it's very much a continuation of that sort of form of exploitation. So, yeah, absolutely. We, we banned what's known as chattel slavery, formal slavery in the form that it was around in the, uh, in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. And uh, the UK is very proud of its role at being the forefront of that. Um, although, of course, you can take a somewhat more cynical view and say that, that perhaps that was due to the changing role of slavery in the global economy, and perhaps that that was the time that it wasn't quite so central to the UK economy. But I think a key point of the book is that those same systems, although chattel slavery may be gone, still continue to persist. And actually, the persistence of very cheap labor and exploited labor, hyper-exploited labor, as it's sometimes referred to, is very much still a part of the status quo. So um, an academic called Kevin Bales, who works on modern slavery around the world, uh, likes to term the kind of current situation as disposable people. Uh, and so, and his, his own thesis is that rather than having what were previously expensive chattel slaves, formerly owned uh, slaves, in fact, we've moved now to a situation in which we don't formally own people, but we get to use them far more cheaply. And that actually, if we look at 
the usage and the value of a human life, it's actually continued to fall down to record levels at the present time. And that really we should trace a kind of continued line from that past period to the present day. How are we going to nullify the, the juggernaut that is the, the fossil fuel industry that, that you know, buys our politicians uh, and they, it seems like there's, you, you mentioned before about the law, they seem to feel that the law doesn't apply to them. They can just keep going, profit at all costs. How do, how do we overcome that sort of thing? Well, a big part of what we have to do um, is to fight back against some of our better instincts in some ways, which is a bit counterintuitive. But um Ordinary people care a lot about the climate, they care a lot about the environment, they care a lot about justice, and they want things to be fair. And you can see around the world, you know, most people in our communities, they'll make cutbacks on the kind of uh, the, the types of uh, products that they use, you know, they'll keep the aircon off, they'll spend more to get what they believe to be an environmentally friendly product, they'll take one less holiday, all of these things. People will do that, they'll make sacrifices. But the problem is, all of those changes don't in reality add up to the kind of change that people want to see. This is essentially a red herring approach to solving the climate crisis. So in order to really make genuine progress, we need to fight back against these kind of narratives that we can consume our way out of the climate crisis, for example, and recognise that it's only through political pressure to genuinely and meaningfully regulate these kind of impacts and to, to, to really push back against the idea that uh, the fossil fuel industry globally can be sustainable or that it can proceed on this very slow path towards decarbonisation, which is the status quo, is, is through that kind of concerted social pressure that I think will, will get there much more effectively. And that means casting aside some of the comforting ideas of what we can do about you know, that kind of idea of sustainable consumption, everybody making that one small change. In fact, it's more about everybody working together to demand a much bigger change, which won't affect our lives necessarily in a huge way, but will affect the world in a very significant way. So what I hear you say is that we need to get organized and the sort of these people you talk about, the ordinary people who care, actually need to do something they don't like very much, which is to take power, which means go into elections, run as candidates, get elected and eventually take over the parliament. Yes, I mean, in a way, exactly that. So, I mean, one of the lines that I use in the book is to say that, uh, you know, the next time you find yourself Googling the lowest carbon product, the lowest carbon T-shirt, you know, put down, close your web browser and pick up, uh, you know, your pen or your phone and, and you know, call your local councillor. I mean, the thing is, we need to kind of affect these changes through the architecture of politics that we already have. We have that power within our democratic systems, but it's a question of actually exercising it collectively uh, and really making a change that way from the bottom up. If we look at where we were in the early 2000s, we were moving towards a huge peak of public concern around the climate. There were a few very hot summers, uh, lethally hot summers in Europe, which caused a huge amount of public concern that apparently brought home to people the seriousness of the issue. And it became a celebrity um, issue. It became something that everybody was talking about. Now, around 2008, 9, 10, that suddenly began, began to change. The, the summers were colder, the winters were colder, and that on a psychological level, though it doesn't affect what's actually happening with the climate in, in general, it speaks to people in a different uh, way. 
and things like the impact of uh, of uh, what's known as uh, as climate gate when a certain number of emails were kind of maliciously leaked and appeared to uh, support conspiracy theories led to a reduction in public seriousness and public uh, concern around this issue for about a decade. It took at least a decade to restore that kind of concern. But the problem is with getting the public on side, there's a very difficult balance between being able to have a widespread enthusiasm for action and then actually getting kind of tangible changes on the board. That's a real issue because actually you can find yourself as a climate movement getting sidetracked onto smaller issues. Whilst on the other hand, you might find yourself as a climate movement trying to talk about the big picture all the time, but when that bubble bursts and public attention turns elsewhere for a time, then you actually haven't made any necessarily tangible progress. It's a really difficult uh, balance to strike. And one of the things that we see, for example, is that there's been a large amount of energy spent by the climate movement as a whole on banning fracking in places like the UK, for example. And some people think that that energy might have been better spent uh, towards more kind of long-standing systematic change, where fracking, for example, in many countries accounts for about 1% of all fossil fuel usage. But what I would say is that we are now at a, a, a global high point of concern around the climate, that we have a huge amount of attention on this issue and a huge amount of enthusiasm to really make change. Now, the question is making sure that we channel this in an effective way, that's systematic, that inputs real long-standing legislative reforms, which will make a long-term impact and will outlive popular enthusiasm if there is another issue that takes public attention away. And what's your advice then to us who are listening to you and who agree? Well, as I say, you know, pick up that phone and you pick up that, open that email, uh, <laughs> open whatever email app it is that you use and make sure that you engage with local politics in a, in a very sustained way. And also, I guess there's a need to be cynical around the claims that many uh, companies make, and in particular that fossil fuel companies make, for example. There's a way of talking about sustainability that has become not just common, but actually ubiquitous. Almost everybody talks the language of sustainability today. One of the things, one of the chapters in the book is called Wolves in Sheep's Clothing, uh, which really makes the case that many of the sustainability advocates that we see and hear from are in reality making a case for a future that cannot be anything like the future that most people want to see, that there needs to be a far more radical change than that. And being aware of the nuances in the way that people talk about sustainability, being aware of the need to go beyond just the language of talking about green futures is very important. We need to be more informed and more critical around people's claims in order to uh, to make a genuine change. Yes, exactly. So uh, in summary, what are you hoping to achieve with this book? What's the whole purpose of writing it? Well, I think, you know, for a start, getting people to think more critically around these claims and, and to move away from some of the, the weaker kind of narratives that we hear around the climate, but also because I've worked for so many years in Cambodia and, uh, and, and the global south generally and witnessed these kind of impacts on a human level. One of the things that I'd like to highlight above all is what the climate looks like from a human's eye view when you're not uh, in a major global capital like London or, uh, or Sydney or Melbourne, for example, uh, when you're actually there at the kind of 
coal face of the climate crisis. And above all, to recognise that the thing that we can do that makes the most possible difference is to improve the economic justice of that situation on a local level. The presence of money on a very basic level to cope with and adapt to the impacts of climate change is the biggest intervention that we can affect. There's no kind of uh, simple change to environmental regulation. We can even go as far as simply making poor people less poor. And so development in an economic sense and an environmental sense go absolutely hand in hand. And that kind of economic justice is crucial to mitigating the impacts of climate change on people as a whole. That's the work that you're doing in Cambodia with uh, local groups? Well, yeah, I mean, I, uh, so the, the work that I do in Cambodia predominantly is looking at this intersection of the, the global economy and, and environmental impact. So it's understanding how the climate manifests around our, our global economy. And that means recognising that people in Cambodia, uh, in parts of Bangladesh, for example, in Sri Lanka, where I also work, which are kind of part of our global supply chains here uh, in the UK. These aren't disconnected people and the way that the, uh, the, the, the climate impacts on them is not just simply a question of bad luck of where you happen to be born. These are active systems that we actively create and recreate. Um, and that these, in many cases, are our workers. So I work with garment workers, for example, that many uh, millions of tons of, of garments are imported from Cambodia alone to the UK uh, every few years. So this is a, a huge kind of uh, global flow of goods. And the workers who produce these goods are themselves not only subject to uh, working towards generating climate change through those industries, but also they are uh, subject to the impacts of climate change. This means hotter factories. It means flooding. It means uh, worsened working conditions and worse in terms of work as a, as a result of all of those impacts. How important do you think it is that, you know, especially here in Australia, that we make strong contact uh, with our local politicians? Should we all be writing letters to our local politicians and um, be on their back? Well, yeah, absolutely, I think so. Uh, I mean, Australia is a fantastic example of the kind of action that can be taken uh, for a start because it's one of the rare countries that is a very big emitter per capita, but also quite vulnerable to climate change, much more so than the majority of major emitters around the world. So you've got the added incentive in Australia and the means to do something about it because, you know, you're actually producing a lot of these emissions and vulnerable to them. It's a rare combination uh, to that extent. And also the brilliant thing is you have the kind of very strong democratic uh, systems to really make a difference and to actually project upwards through those kind of grassroots movements. So do I think you should be writing to politicians and making change? Yes, absolutely. I and mean, I can talk about an example in the UK just, uh, just last week. One of the things that I've been highlighting in recent years, for example, is that uh, the international brick trade is a major issue for the UK. The UK is the number one brick importer in the world. And increasingly, a very large number of bricks have been imported from, for example, Pakistan, and India, where they're made in very poor conditions, and even if you take out the human aspect of that and the local environmental impact, the carbon impact of, of shipping these very low-value, high-weight things, 17,000 kilometres, 30 million plus every year, is huge. And so one of the things that just by getting in touch with local politicians is that um, there's been, uh, by uh, a local government, 
memo stating that all kind of uh, all local government uh, institutions will now have to eliminate these imported bricks from their supply chains. And that's just the beginning of what you can do just simply with one letter and just one kind of persuasive call. If everybody takes that active approach to the local politics of the environment, then a huge change can happen much more quickly. We live together. The most important word in today's world is, in fact, together. About five weeks ago, there was a fair bit of uh, media around Finland being the happiest country on the planet, and I think it was for the fourth or fifth year in a row or maybe more. So we thought we'd, we'd find out a little bit more about that. So as a result of that, Today, we've got Katrina Taka. Katrina is Aussie-born, but with a very strong Finnish heritage. Uh, she's got a, a strong social conscience, which comes from being connected with that country. So, Katrina, welcome. Welcome to the Sustainable Hour. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Or should I say kitos? Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure. So, tell us, how can, we, how can Australia become happier? more content with our lot? Um, I'd jump in and say we have to have much more of a collective way of viewing this country that we live in. Um, it's extremely individualistic uh, and that probably sways how we view happiness because I think we've got a very individual view of happiness and, you know, am I? do I have everything I want? Do I have everything I need? Therefore, am I happy? And it's interesting, I, I lean into that part of it because after I wrote that article, most of the commentary that I heard back from it, a lot of it was very positive, but the people who were negative were focusing on very individual elements of unhappiness and it forced me to really sit and think about that and I thought, what's happening here? And it's because it was that people were just going down this really isolated, solo way of thinking about happiness. Am I happy? Am I satisfied? Whereas the whole point of this um, um, survey that they do on an annual basis is it actually um, assesses holistic human health and well-being in a country and how content people are with the standard of living. And I think, Tony, you used the word contentment. I think that might cause a little bit less controversy because happiness and contentment are potentially two different words. So, yeah, I'd start there with um, a bit of collective thinking and and. I loved in your welcome to country that you acknowledge that um, amazing First Nations wealth of knowledge that we have here, and that is certainly a culture that has had a collective viewpoint on health and wellbeing for a long period of time. And I, I reckon we could start there just by learning a lot from our First Nations people. What do you think the ingredients are in, in Finland then for, for this outcome? Nature comes every time you talk to a Finn about what makes them happy or why they're happy, they talk about nature and it's everywhere. You know, you walk out of your front door, you walk out of your gate, it's everywhere. And that is both an individual and a collective form of happiness because there is a um, huge individual and cultural and, and government-based collective responsibility to look after our nature in Finland. I mean, this is a country that has had, um, you know, forestry as an industry, as one of its primary industries for a very long time, and yet 
we have the most amazing untouched or, um, you know, replenished forests. So we can do logging and forestry um, and still have an incredibly green country. And that's because there is a absolute passion and commitment for looking after our water and our trees and our nature. And I guess it comes from the fact that we're in um, a climate that is so fierce in many ways. You can't be disconnected to nature. You can't take it for granted. It's it's freezing cold. It's covered in snow. Food doesn't grow in certain months. If you don't plan for that, you won't be having, you know, your own vegetables. So from the very beginning of us living there, we had to be deeply connected to nature um, because, you know, you have to be planning for how you are going to live in those sorts of climates and um, how you are going to survive through it. And I think that has gone into the very DNA of our population, both from how we live, what we respect and value. And I think it underpins the way in which both government and industry treat the um, actual country that we live on. Mm. Not only has Finland got a hostile climate, Katrina, but you've also probably got the most hostile neighbour in the world. And it, it um well, it, it struck me as ironic when it was uh, noted that Finland has the happiest population, that you're sitting there next to Russia, the most threatening of all the nations. How on earth is that balanced? Um, and that, that neighbour is very, very close to us psychologically because that the winter war that we had with Russia was, you know, in our living memory. Like my my family remember that they were there and in fact that uh you know when russia invaded part of finland we actually had to retreat and most of our families had lived in a part of finland that's now called russia um but how can we still be happy because i think um it has actually been very happy with its neutrality from nato for a very long period of time it has been very proud of its neutral position and the recent vote to join nato caused a lot of discussion and debate at our um, community level about whether this is the right thing to do. Now, I mean, obviously, there's a majority support for doing it, um, but that the happiness comes in the trust that we understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. And even in the happiness survey, trust in what your society decides to do is one of the very high levers in there. And I think that there is a high level of understanding that this is the next step in Finland's way that it wants to be a citizen of the world. So it's very conscious of its role as a global citizen and what it needs to do to keep playing that role. Um, and they are worried about that neighbour, absolutely. But what can we do? It's our geography. So, Katrina, back to the original question from Tony. How can mm. we here in Australia learn from you? The Finnish I think one thing we don't do much of in Australia, and I work with a lot of businesses from people strategies is we have a very short-term view of the world um, when we make decisions and I'd say that about you know any CEO any senior leadership team any board and government so you know KPIs tend to be measured on 12-month cycles so people get rewarded um, on 12-month cycles which I think leads to a lot of 12-month thinking whereas in Finland, I'm aware that a lot of decisions are tested on the basis of what's the impact of this in one generation, two generations. So there is a much higher degree of intergenerational thinking. Um, and, you know, if we do this today, you know, what will be the impact in 20 years' time? And I think in Australia we need to have a lot more of that, you know, 
plant seeds that you'll never sit in the shade of thinking like let's do stuff with an intergenerational mindset and that would fundamentally impact the way we do a lot of things if not only in environment but even human issues and the way we look at human issues such as health and well-being and migration and workforce levels um, I just think we've got a quick hit of 12-month thinking. That seems to me to be very much thinking allied with Indigenous wisdom. Is there a connection in Finland that with um, a closer connection? So in Finland, we have um, an Indigenous population of the Sami people who are in the northern part of Finland above the Arctic Circle, and they're actually one of the very first Indigenous groups in the world to be um, to self-determine. So they have their own government and education system and lands that I think cross over into some of our neighbours like um, Sweden and Norway. It's certainly not an area that I would say I'm an expert in, um, Tony. However, I am doing some work at the moment with three First Nation partners and we've been building a leadership program um, specifically tailor-made for Australian First Nations people. And, and in sitting with my partners and doing this work, we have on a daily basis, talked about the many, many ways in which the Finnish culture and Australian First Nations people have got so much similarity to it. Mm. Um, and one of the ways that we've really discovered a very similar, aside from that deep care and respect for our land and our nature, is actually that um, collective ownership. And say, for example, in northern Finland, in Lapland, you know, you don't own reindeer, you have an accountability to care for them. And they roam freely and I think that in itself just articulates a lot of that crossover between the way our Indigenous population in Australia thinks about land and nature that you are constantly accountable yeah. for ongoing care. Yeah, custodians rather than owners. Yeah. 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 And I understand that Finland's education system is widely acknowledged as being uh, world leaders. What is it about that and, and how does that flow into Finnish culture and, you know, what we've been talking about. Mm. Mm. But, look, straight away some critics will come out and say it's slipped. So apparently on some different ratings it's slipped and they love pointing that out. However, I think there are some fundamental um, parts of its leadership. A, it's free. Um, so every child um, from, you know, a very early age goes to school and is educated. Um, again, it has a very large focus on nature. So a lot of the classes will literally walk out into the forest and children are just let go. There's no school fences. They don't have fences. So, you know, when there's a time, time for a break, go and run in the forest and climb a tree. And we don't have all of this ridiculous, you know, running and climbing bands that Australian schools have because, God forbid, children play. Um the other thing, accommodation is free for a student or at least subsidised up to 75%. And I think one of the critical things for me is that access is so important, whereas we pretend that we've got access to education in Australia, but we have got a lot of limitations in this country when it comes to access to education. Um, yes, there's stuff about curriculum, but I'm, I'm not a teacher, so I won't get into that. But I do believe that it's also more structured around practical realistic profession-based knowledge rather than some sort of archaic English tradition of teaching English maths and science in an old-fashioned way. They actually align their teaching to what the current skills are that 
people need when they exit school and are ready, workforce ready and thinking in a very modern way. And they encourage students to think for themselves rather than being told constantly, this is what you need to know and this is how I want you to regurgitate it back for me. Mm. So they'd be harder to greenwash. (laughs) Extremely hard. (laughs) Can I just go back a little bit, Katrina, when you said education is free? Does this mean that there are no private schools and is it free at a university level as well? But mainly what I wanted to ask before you mentioned both of those is how is power generated in Finland uh, by burning coal or burning wood or have you got uh, enough solar or wind to give the country completely clean energy? I suspect you guys might be experts in that area um, over and above me. Um, I'm not sure if they've gone completely there, but certainly they would be a lot more on advanced than we are on that journey. Things also just live quite naturally, quite lightly. So there's this whole concept of, you know, they, they nearly all have a shack by a lake where they retreat to when it's not covered in snow. And very often they're lucky to have, um, you know, electricity. They're certainly on their own, you know, water tanks and they live very lightly in nature anyway. But how far the whole or how close we are to reaching our sustainability goals, I can't answer that um, with authority. Otherwise, I'll be saying something that someone's going to come and say, you're wrong. (laughs) And the schools? Yes, free. It's all free. And and if you are... um, Coming in from overseas, I believe there might be some contemplation now of introducing fees for overseas students because there is, you know, obviously a high bill to pay for all of this high level of social security. Um, No one goes to a private school because why would you? And the school system, the teachers are paid very highly. They're actually one of the most respected professions and that is a massive differentiator. So, um, you know, to become a teacher in Finland is a very honoured and highly regarded profession that comes with a, a salary to match. So the need for a private school doesn't exist. It's also not a country that has a high degree of um, fast-paced behaviour. So there's a lot less over displays of wealth. So you don't need to go to a private school for a better education. You don't need to go to a private school to show off because they're not kind of things that we do. Um, it's a very humble country and you know people don't really like overt displays of wealth and and being better than others so it's a a very high quality public education system so katrina the work that you do here in australia i'm interested in in this talk about leadership and leadership when it comes to standing up and changing the mindset of your community because as i was saying in the beginning at the moment i really think we have a council here where I live that totally fails that role. How do we educate a new, you could say, a new generation of leaders who are ready to step up? How do we get people to say, yep, I'm going to run for that election because I think I have that to offer? How do we create real climate leaders? For me, it goes back to that accountability word. I think too often here leaders um, or the concept of leadership is associated with a different form of action that's either being the loudest or the grandest or the smartest or, you know, in um, some ways it's the sort of, you know, jazz hands leadership. Um, whereas 
if you're a leader, what do you actually have to do? You actually have to be accountable for doing something and then inspiring and motivating others to come with you on the journey. And, you know, that applies in the work that I do as well. Like I, I work on inclusion um, and, you know, how do we include everybody in the workplace? And all too often people in that topic think, oh, we have to give assistance to the migrants or we have to give assistance to the women to help them get into the workforce. It's always deficit-based thinking about we have to fix the other people, but the leaders are just fine, thank you very much. Nothing to see here, nothing to do. You don't need to fix me because I'm a leader, so that means I'm perfect and I've got all the answers. Whereas I think the first step even in dealing with inclusion or sustainability or whatever it is, is the leader has to go, what do I need to do differently personally to role model, set the scene, um, display to others the behaviours we have to have. And it goes to the point you made earlier, Colin, about not showing up um, because you're on a massive stink bike. It just says it all. It's like if you're a leader, you are being observed and there's this concept of the leadership shadow. So anyone who has any position of leadership throws a very broad shadow of influence around them and people are observing and watching and taking cues from your behaviour and that's how culture and behaviour get set. So whether it's in human inclusion or, the, you know, environmental issues or any sort of issue that a leader wants to be known for, that it starts with them. Mm, definitely. And I think it's that attitude that's probably behind the happiness in Finland. And I think mm. it's really ironic that Australia, with all of its climate advantages or sunshine and the wind and a small population lags far behind Finland, which has got the, the most ridiculously hostile, cold, uh, difficult climate. And, uh, and they're looked upon as world leaders and we're looked upon as world laggards. Mm. It's the irony of, um, of our planet, you could say. It, it also just leads that you don't have to do something about it. It's easy. You can go and lie on a beach, you know, because you're not thinking about the impact of that in 50 years' time. It's like, why, why should I worry today? It's all good, mate. You know, I'm, I'm fine. But you can't have that sort of way of thinking if your daily existence requires you to be proactive and strategic about everything that you do on a you know, short-term and long-term basis. And, and certainly if you have children who are in the age, let's say from 15 to 25, that group now, as survey after survey is showing, is so concerned, it's keeping them awake at night. What's going on with our planet and what kind of future are they going to have? It, it, it has, there's lots of studies that show that they've actually got measurable levels of higher stress and anxiety and mental health outcomes because of the stress that they're now taking on because of our behaviour as leaders and you know whether we're on a pedestal leader or a parent leader where we are leading that generation and they're in stress our finished guest is the perfect person to finish our show <laughs> i i have heard so many versions of things like that i was finished before i started colin <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Katrina, for uh, giving us some inspiration towards a happier and, and a better way of uh, moving forward from here. And what that means also in, in terms of how we become accountable and take responsibility as leaders in the climate emergency. This is so important. I think we can end the show by saying, be the Finnish 
difference. Yeah. <laughs> be, be the finish. Yeah, learn from the finish. <laughs> Be the difference I know the world's gone mad It's true Be the difference Many people say that Sweden is just a small country and it doesn't matter what we do. But I've learned that you are never too small to make a difference. <laughs>